You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Hello, I'm Bob Ambrogi. And I'm Monica Bay. We've been writing about law and technology for more than 30 years. That's right. During that time, we've witnessed many changes and innovations. Technology is improving the practice of law, helping lawyers deliver their services faster and cheaper. Which benefits not only lawyers and their clients, but everyone. And moves us closer to the goal of access to justice for all. Tune in every month as we explore the new legal technology and the people behind the tech here on Law Technology Now. Hello, this is Dan Lina. Welcome to Law Technology Now on the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking about the American Lawyer 2019 AmLaw 100 data, which was just released today, this April 23rd. To walk us through the AmLaw 100 data, my guests today are Gina Passarella and Nick Brew. Gina is the editor-in-chief of The American Lawyer, and she has covered the business of law for nearly 15 years. Nick Brew is the director of legal market intelligence at ALM, and he's also the director of ALM's Intelligence Fellows Institute. Gina and Nick, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks. Well, before we get started, we want to thank our sponsor. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Thomson Reuters, Westlaw Edge. Thank you, Thomson Reuters. Okay, let's jump into our discussion about the American Lawyer 2019 AMLA 100 data. And uh, we've got Gina Passarella and Nick Brew with us. And Gina, can you just kind of set the table here by telling us what are the big picture takeaways in this year's AMLA 100 data? Sure thing. So it's 2018 was a great year for large law firms. Um, we saw some of the highest increases in the key financial metrics that we've seen since the recession hit almost 10 years ago, about 10 years ago. We saw an 8% revenue increase, gross revenue on average, which bested last year's gains. We saw a 4.2% increase in revenue per lawyer and a 6.5% increase in profits per partner, all some of the highest uh, percentages or the highest that we've seen since the recession. And as part of that growth, what really stood out to us was that it kind of a rising tide lifted all boats. So we've talked a lot over the years about stratification among the 100 largest law firms and how the top half is doing so much better than the bottom half. This year, really, we saw a lot of growth across the board. So more firms benefited from this healthy year than we've seen in the past. Only seven firms saw declines in revenue among the 100. So it was a really strong year, backed a lot by growth in M&A, corporate work, but for other counter-cyclical practices for firms further down the list, like litigation and, and other areas. So really everybody had something they were offering that was in demand in the market. And then on top of that, they were all pretty successful at putting through rate increases, at least at the top level. There's a little bit more to that story that we'll get into later. Okay. Nick, would you have anything to add to that just to kind of set the table? Yeah. I mean, I'd echo what Gina mentioned. Um, obviously, the growth figure speaks for itself. 8% is is pretty good in the post-downturn period. Uh, it's certainly the best we've seen in over a decade. Um, as with what Gina said, it's pretty broad-based growth, right? 93% of firms grew. Um, you know, a, a large portion of firms almost 
60% grew by over 5%. Uh, this is a pretty good year. Um, I'd say the nuance here is that the growth was uneven. And so some firms did grow faster than others. Uh, so that's an important thing to note. And the other thing is to note that sort of we might talk about later is that if we take a view at this mar- this point in time and compare it to past market peaks, right? The the legal industry tends to be pretty cyclical, and and when we're the market's doing poorly, most firms do poorly. When it's doing well, most firms do well. This does not look like the past market peak, and that I think casts sort of a long shadow over what was a good year. Um, that should create some concern for law firms and and law firm leaders and partners, frankly. All right. Well, I look forward to diving into that a little bit more deeply. Uh, Nick, I wanted to follow up. So we're talking, when we look at the AMLA 100, I know I looked at last year's report and it said that really the top 10 firms in the 100 accounted for a quarter of that revenue from the top 100. And then it was, I think, approximately the last 47 or so, near, so nearly the bottom half that accounted for only another quarter of the revenue. So a lot of variation across those top 100 firms. Could you kind of tell us like what kind of bands we ought to be thinking about those firms as falling into? Yeah. So um, the top 10 firms this year in terms of sort of the firms that grew the most in dollar terms, right? We're not looking at percentages here. Those firms make up sort of 33, 36% of the aggregate revenue growth, right? So 10 firms make up 36% of the revenue growth. If you look at the profitability side, it's actually more stark. 10 firms make up 42% of the total profit growth. Uh, If we expand that number to the top 25 firms, we go to 62% of, of the revenue growth. And so on some level, the growth is pretty concentrated. Now, what I'll say is that this is down from last year, so the concentration is a little bit down. Um, and also, this isn't so um, strange. This This was true in the last market peak. This was true throughout the you know, post-downturn period. Growth in aggregate terms tends to be fairly concentrated in the AMLA group. Um, so that's one way to cut it. I think the other two ways to cut it are by size. A lot of people talk about the AMLA 25, the AMLA 50, the AMLA 75, et cetera. I think there you start to see some divergence. If you look at the numbers initially, they look like they, they also had a pretty good year. It's sort of 5.7% growth. The nuance there is there's a ton of mergers in that group. And if we start to control for those mergers, their their growth rate almost drops in half. It goes to 3.6%. So if you think about the the biggest firms are growing by sort of 8.5%. The the smallest firms within the AMLA 100 are growing by 3.5%, right? That's a big difference. And importantly, the gap widens from last year. The the gap last year was the, the biggest firms grew by twice the rate of the slowest firms. This year, it's a little more than twice. So I think what you start to see when you dive deeper and deeper into this data is some of those stratification numbers that we tended to see throughout the post-downturn period are still there. It's just they're stratified by everyone's having at least a decent year, perhaps a great year. Um, That's how I tend to cut it. I think there's other ways that we could talk about. Another way that I think a lot of people tend to like to look at the data is by the most profitable firms, either by profit per equity partner or profit per lawyer. Uh, My good friend Hugh Simons tends to look at it that way. Um, And I think there's a lot of validity to that approach. And it does yield some interesting findings. 
Well, Nick, I just want to follow up quick on something you just said, because and as a former practicing lawyer, and I know this has started to change, but there's still generally a lot of talk just about how big my book is. And we just look at revenue for lawyers, but these differences in profitability across the AMLA 100, can you just speak to that a little bit more and kind of how you would generalize what you see across the AMLA, how you might bucket firms as, as more profitable and what is the magnitude of the difference? Sure. There's a lot of argument over what the right profitability metric. There's profit margins. There's profit per lawyer. There's profit per partner. There's profit per equity partner. Um, I think all of these different metrics are useful for different things. And typically, I like to look at them in concert. I like to see how they're moving together so I can understand the moving parts. Um, I think how if you look at profit per equity partner, which is the figure that most people tend to zoom in on because that figure tends to describe partners' take-home pay, right? This is, this is their comp, and comp tends to drive eyeballs. Um, if we look at sort of 2000, go back to that period and compare the top 10, 25 firms to the bottom 100 firms, right, in the AMLA 200, the difference between those two groups, between the top 25 and the bottom 100, was a million dollars in average profit per equity partner. Today, the, the difference is 3.5 million, right? And so I think what we see just in that figure is that the gap has widened dramatically between these two groups of firms. And I think this year is, is no different. The, the average growth, revenue growth for the top 25 firms in the MLA 100 in terms of revenue growth um, was 9.3%. That's that's really, really strong growth. It's not pre-downturn growth, right? In 2007, we were growing at 16.2% among that group. So so they were, they were killing it, basically, during that group. That top group's profit per equity partner grew by 8.1% this year. If you look at the bottom 25 of the MLA 100 in both of those groups, either revenue growth or profit per equity partner growth, you see them growing by a roughly about half. Um, and I think you can start to see in that figure the kinds of firms that are doing extremely well. And they're doing extremely well for exactly the reasons that Gina mentioned. One, they can push up rates, right, because their services are coveted, because they are special, they are focusing on the highest value services, therefore they face the least competition. Um, they can push rates farther and the clients will pay. On top of that, obviously, it was a good deal year. It was a good litigation year. That obviously flows to these firms um, in terms of, of growth uh, in their core services. Okay. So, Gina, Nick just mentioned a couple of drivers, and you in your intro did as well. And I think you talked about just kind of generally the market increases, mergers, rate increases, and then specific practice areas is there anything else we should be looking at that has been driving these improvements? And then I'd like to just start maybe drilling down on some of these categories a bit. Sure. So I think a couple things. One, you can look at this regionally too. I mean, it's hard to categorize firms by by geography given that they practice so globally. But we look at, say, um, California firms. They had a really strong year. And that was driven a lot by their ties to the tech industry. It was a busy year for the tech industry, particularly on the M&A side. This year is promising to be more of the same. So they had a really strong year. New York firms, which a lot of them make up the top of our AMLA 100, they had a super strong year, largely because of deal work. Um, and then, you know, you see, you look to D.C., didn't have a bad year by any means because nobody really did, but they didn't see the demand increase as much as some of the other markets because enforcement was slower and, and that type of thing. So your practice mix definitely 
has an impact on on your outcome without a doubt. I mean, we look at our super rich that we put together every year, which um, is, is basically the firms that are showing the best revenue per lawyer growth, the best profitability, profit per lawyer growth. And that list is largely the same in the five years that we've done it. And, and we looked at why that is, what lessons can we learn from, from those firms. And it's really about kind of having a niche, knowing who you are, what you offer, sticking to that, and creating a brand around it, frankly, and a culture that keeps the, the top lawyers there wanting to stay in practice and keeps the clients coming back because you are the go-to for that. And so two of the new entrants on that list this year, I think, are examples of that. We have Cooley, which is very tied to the tech industry. Um, and, and has really leveraged that. And then you have Fish and Richardson, which is a large boutique, but an IP boutique and so super concentrated area. So I, I think that that mix um, of practice mix dictates a lot of, of what you're seeing. And that brand that you create really will have an impact on how much demand growth and rate growth you can you can generate. Gina, can you say a little bit more about rate increases? You pointed out some firms like Cooley and Fish and Richardson that have had a strategy of, of really differentiating themselves in the marketplace and that that can be connected to firms then that can really benefit from potential rate increases. Can you say something about the AMLA 100 generally? I mean, is there other data to suggest that uh, only certain types of firms can benefit from rate increases in the marketplace today? Um, I wouldn't say that only certain types of firms are benefiting from rate increases. I think we saw more across the board that firms were able to push through rate increases at a greater rate um, for almost all firms. But rate increases are a tricky thing, and Nick and I'm sure speaks more to this. But we we also did an analysis as part of the ML100 this year looking at the discount culture of law firms and write-downs and how the standard rate has kind of become a mockery. And so it's really about, you know, okay, we set these rates, we're doing these increases, but how much are you discounting off of that? So how much do the rate increases really matter? I mean, we see in the numbers here, there's growth and gross revenue that is outpacing lawyer count. And so part of that is certainly from rate increases. There's no doubt that it's having an impact in helping, but how much more could it have been if those rate increases were were real and were captured and the realization rate was stronger? Uh, what one of our reporters found was that the way he looked at the math, if if we look at what firms left, the AMLA 100 specifically left on the table through discounts last year, it was $4.4 billion with a B dollars. So there's still, you know, while this 2018 was a great year, it could be better. And, and that gets into, frankly, firms' business models. Are they finding ways to better offer value to the clients? Perhaps not if they're still relying on discounts. Um, that's a, a whole longer discussion, but, but that's, that's my general take on, on the rate increase front, Nick. I don't know if you have other thoughts on, on some of the data. Yeah, I mean, one thing I see when I look at the data is the firms that are growing the slowest tend to have the most rate pressure. Um, I think that to me suggests there is some discounting going on just to buy growth, right? To, to buy work, essentially, firms are, are discounting their, their rates. And so that's one thing that I think stands out in the data. The other thing that I always wonder about with the hourly rates is, you know, we tend to look at average hourly rates. Over the last decade or even longer, what we've seen is more and more associates creeping into sort of the share of total lawyers and also more and more non-equity partners. Uh, the fastest growing group of lawyers this year was associates. The second biggest was non-equity partners. And then you take a huge jump down to equity partners, which did grow, but grew very slowly. That's obviously going to mean the billing rate growth, average billing rate 
sort of grow more slowly because growing at a sort of the lower end of the spectrum of the law firm. So I think that's something to always keep in mind when you're looking at some of this data. Uh, but yeah, I mean, what I'd echo what Gina said, uh, the firms that were able to push up rates the fastest were those at sort of the, you know, quote unquote elite. end. also the biggest firms tended to do a little better in this area, but but generally speaking, I'd say it was it was a pretty mixed bag, both with the firms that struggled and also the firms that did well. There were there were smaller firms who focused on niche areas who did extremely well in this area, as well as some big elite firms who frankly look like they struggled. So you know, there's a lot of divergence in in the data. A couple of follow up questions on that. Gina, you mentioned that with the discounts, four point four billion left on the table. I guess maybe part of the question you alluded to this is that the kind of rack rates aren't aren't real, right? It's like when you're at the hotel and you look at the sticker on the back of the door and it says if you overstay your welcome, it's like a thousand bucks a day, and no one's saying like, <laughs> oh, well, that's the you know rate we're getting. Dis- that's our price is a seventy percent discount then to stay here. Uh, I mean, and actually, now I'm five years removed now from being an equity partner, so then things have been changing. But I had a sense that some firms definitely really were always trying to drive to as close to hundred percent realization as possible, and other firms seem to have come along with a strategy that we know we have to discount, so we're going to bump up our rates and discount. I mean, are you seeing other evidence for that? or? I mean, I, I, we're definitely still seeing the discount culture. It's it's clear. I worry for firms when a recession hits what what the impact of that is going to be. But to firms' credits, I mean, one, they're, they're increasingly hiring pricing directors who are working their tails off to be the go-betweens between the law firms and the clients to try to figure out an alternative solution. And I can't lay the blame all at the feet of the law firms. You'll hear from them, and I hear from clients themselves that clients don't really know a better way. They hear these alternative fees being pitched, and they get a little scared and think, oh, I don't know how that really works out. Let's just stick with the hourly rate, but can you lop off 10%? And and so it's just a cycle where where things don't change. I mean, we're still at a point where I would say a 20%, uh, if, if a firm has 20% of their revenue coming from alternative fees, that's high. I mean, that's we have not really gone much past that. And, and I think, you know, there's so much that needs to, to be looked at. If you're really going to make meaningful changes to the way that you deliver legal services, it can't just be through discounts. It needs to be through perhaps alternative pricing, but also you need to adjust staffing models and project management issues and compensation structures. I mean, so much needs to go into really looking at better ways to deliver legal services. But when you're coming off of a year like 2018 or 2017 before it, where things are going pretty well, it's it's hard to, to think, oh, wow, I need to do much to change this. I don't want to mess with a good thing. I have a, I have a story yes. from, I was talking to a general counsel that I think might give you a sense of the psyche involved on the client side. I had heard maybe six or seven months ago, I was talking with a a law firm about sort of increasing rack rates to strategically basically give the law department the room to kind of negotiate down. Um, And so I started to call around to general counsel. One general counsel told me flat out, he said, I have to report how many dollars I am saving the company through my negotiation strategies. And he said, and what I do is I take the rack rate and I apply the rack rate against the dollars versus the the end rate. And all of the dollars that I saved from reducing the rack rate down to whatever the the pay rate was, um, I count that as a saving and I report it up to my CFO, right? And so you can see right there, 
how this system of increasing the rack rates benefits everyone. It benefits the GC because it makes them look good. They can go to the CFO and say, look how much money I saved. It also benefits the law firms because they can make the client feel good about the fact that they saved 3% or 5% or whatever it is. Uh, This is a game everyone benefits, and I think the law firms have learned how to game this game, right? That's my take on it. Well, I I think, too, I would just add to that that I think the important thing for firms to do is really be honest with themselves and track realization from a time worked versus time billed. So whatever the negotiated rate is with the client, making sure that when you go to do that work, you're able to charge for all of the work done um, at that rate. And I think sometimes, you know, you'll come to a negotiated rate and then the client will still say, well, that's not the amount of hours that I expected or that's not the the type of lawyer that I expected to be working on it. So that's where the project management and staffing really comes in as well. Yeah. So it was interesting that you said that we're seeing at some firms maybe up to 20% AFAs. I'm interested in, I guess, what data you have to show that we're getting more adoption of alternative fees. Um, you know, I know Cisco has been doing that for a while. Uh, Microsoft not too long ago announced that they, I think, wanted to have 95% of all their matters on uh, alternative fee models within the next couple of years. So there's a lot of indicators to see that the market is moving in that direction. What would you say as far as what the data shows? We may not be as far along as we want to be, but do you have any data for this year's report that would suggest we're seeing that there was an increase in any kind of alternative fee billing? So we do ask firms what percentage of their revenue has come from an alternative fee arrangement. Not everybody answers it, frankly, but we get we get a, a decent return on that. And we have not really seen the needle move over the last several years. And I have to admit, not knowing the exact percentage um, for this year, I apologize, I can get that for you. But we we just haven't seen much of an increase. There are definitely the news articles out there of the occasional company trying to make a stand in this in this regard, and you see more and more of it, and you definitely hear firms thinking more and more about it. But I haven't seen the percentage change much. And Nick, I don't know if you have better insight into the data there. I would basically agree with what Gina said. Um, first and foremost, I think it's important to note that the definition of an AFA is not agreed upon by law firms or law departments. Many people still, when they report out what percentage of their uh, revenue streams on the law firm side or their costs on the law department side are in AFAs, many people still count reduced hourly rates as an AFA. I think most people would agree that that is not an AFA. It's certainly not in the spirit of an AFA. And so the data is really muddied, not uh, from almost no data on AFAs. It doesn't have this problem. To to Gina's point, uh, we've seen the percentage of AFAs pretty much stabilized. And I think what we saw over maybe five, six years ago, it crept up and then it actually dropped down a little and then it stabilized. And I think that's because clients are still mulling over where AFAs make sense, where they don't make sense, where they add more simplicity, where they add more clarity. I suspect we're probably pretty close to where we're going to end up in terms of AFAs. We might see some change as we see more managed services offerings come into the market, either from the ASPs or from the big four. Those won't exactly look like what we all think of AFAs, but they will be sort of in practical sense in AFA. But yeah. Well, let me just clarify. So I guess you're thinking you think we're pretty close to where we'll end up. In other words, there won't be an increase in the amount of revenue generated through AFAs versus billable. Like I said, I I think personally, 
The managed services model is going to grow quite a bit over the next, let's say, decade. Um, I think that mm-hmm. will ultimately be an AFA, but it, but it will be very different. These will be long-term contracts. They will be contracts that manage tons of work. And so they won't be AFAs priced on a single engagement. And so that's not going to be sort of what we think of as an AFA. It's going to be a very different model, often done by very different providers who probably include some law firms, but also don't include some law firms. I'm skeptical we're going to see a significant increase in AFAs. I think what most people forget about when they think about AFAs is if you take the difference between, for example, an hourly rate and a pure fixed fee. Essentially, an hourly rate, the law department is saying, look, I'm going to own all of the cost risk. If the cost goes up, I eat that. But what I'm not going to own is I'm not going to own any of, of the quality risk, right? I'm willing to pay more to get more. If you think of a fixed fee, what they're doing is they're actually pushing the cost risk goes to the law firm. If you go over, you eat it. But also, they're telling the law firms to manage, right? Um, And they're saying, you have to deliver X for Y dollars, and the law firms will then manage to that. They'll put more associates on it. They'll put more non-equity partners on it. They'll put less equity partner time, right? They're going to manage that so that it's profitable. Many clients don't want a lot of their work managed in that way. They want the highest value or the best lawyers on it. Whether that's appropriate or not, I think you can debate based on the type of work, based on the engagement. But I'm skeptical clients are going to say, you know what, we don't, we don't care how you manage it. We want you to deliver it at X fee. I think there's a range of services that clients are willing to have that hands-off approach, but I think that we might be close to tapped out, again, outside of the managed services space. That's a whole different space that I think is, is going to be treated very differently. There are two things that I would add that I think are potential drivers to actually see an increase in AFAs, but then I'll give you my skeptical view of why that may not happen. And it's the increase of pricing directors. And if they're really given the room to do their job over the next 10 years, then then I think particularly as they try to compete with all of these alternative legal services providers who are coming into the market, then I think we could see a change. And then secondly, a recession. Likely you would think that, okay, that that's going to really increase competition. Firms are going to have to get creative, particularly because their competition in the recession is going to be those ASPs who are doing a better job of alternative fee arrangements. But then the cynical side comes in and says, if we didn't see, you know, a lot of those same pressures existed 10 years ago when the Great Recession happened. And if we didn't see dramatic shift after that, what possibly could force that shift? So it's kind of a, a TBD on that front, I think. Yeah. Well, I have to say, I hope you're both wrong, and I want to be Me optimistic. <laughs> and, and part, yeah, yeah. Well, I think part of it is, and maybe I'm spending too much time talking to Steve Harmon at Cisco and Connie Brenton at NetApp and Mario Carroll at Google and all the stuff they're doing with Clock and and talking to Sam Ranganathan at at AbV here with uh, ACC Legal Ops and they're really pushing in the other direction. And, uh, you know, I'd really, if I went back to a law firm right now, I'd want to embrace this and say. I want to be the general contractor on this. I'm going to look out for your needs, client. Uh, you don't have to watch this. And, and, you know, we're going to have this true collaboration and partnership. And it seems to be there's we're seeing some examples of that working. But, yeah, measuring, I guess, how that works across the marketplace, it's hard to tell how much movement we're getting and whether it's going to be a trend. Uh, the question that I have related to that, and this kind of goes to, you know, one of the obstacles is our incentive structure, the way the law firms are structured, uh, the way we have metrics, right? The AMLAW 100 each year, right? It kind of gets us focused on the near term 
at the expense of the long term. Uh, I'm just wondering what you guys' thoughts are on that and how do we get some of the lawyers and uh, most management I talk to at large law firms, they get it. It's getting the lawyers in their firms on board with this idea about the things we need to do for the long term. What would you say, how can we use this data to help lawyers and others um, think about not just the short term, but the long term game that we need to play here? Sure. So, I mean, I, I, you know, I know that we put out the MLAW 100, but I would never advise any firm to manage to a quarter or a year or their ranking, certainly, in the MLAW 100. I don't think that's a smart business strategy. Certainly, firms need to look at their, their yearly metrics and, and track that and budget for it. That's just how businesses operate. And and the health of these businesses is, is crucial to, you know, the larger profession and the, the thousands of people that they employ. But I think it's also incredibly smart for these firms to have multi-year strategic plans and to really focus on that. And we understand that they're, they're running businesses. There's going to be blips. You may have to do layoffs, and that might not be a bad thing. You may have to back out of a practice area, and that might be a smart move. So there's you have to look at both the short and the long term. And, and really what it comes down to for me is knowing who you are, being comfortable with that, managing to that strategy and not straying from it. Um, and, and so I think data is always good. It's, it's important to look at the data and follow it. And I think it can give us insight into how some of the changes to legal services delivery are impacting the markets, but it's, it's certainly not everything. You have to have human intelligence. You have to be in touch with your clients. You have to know what they want. And if data is showing that, you know, they're taking more work in-house or their or alternative legal services providers are taking a bigger piece of the pie, then you have to pay attention to that too, because it may mean that you're not giving clients the services that they really want. Yeah, I would echo what Gina just said. Um, I as the MLAW data comes out, I end up spending a fair amount of my time talking to firm leaders about the data. And in all honesty, I can't think of a single firm that has asked me about, you know, a single year performance. Uh, they they generally want to see the forest for the trees. Uh, they're much more interested in five or 10 or frankly, even 15 years worth of data because they want to understand how the market's moving. They want to understand how their segment's moving. They want to understand how they're moving within that current. And they then want to understand what the opportunities, what the challenges in the data are. I think that's what the AMLA data is most useful for. That's how I approach it. That's how most of the law firms I speak to uh, approach it. And I think in many ways, actually, this year is a perfect example. The data from this year looks great in and of itself. You look at at 8% growth versus 6% growth last year. You look at 29% of firms growing by 10% or more versus 15% last year. This looks fantastic. It looks like an absolutely fantastic year. Now, the problem is, is when we compare it to 2007 or 2008, the story gets to be a little more uh, nuanced, right? In 2007, which was the peak of the last economic cycle, which you could argue that today is the peak of an economic cycle, 67% of firms grew faster than 10%. Today, again, to remind you, we're at 29 at that point in time, the MLA 100 was growing by 14%, not 8%, right? Almost double. That, I think, puts this year's what was good performance for the post-downturn period into a wider setting. It helps us understand, okay, this was a good year, but if this is as good as it gets, 
this is pretty concerning, right? This suggests that there is a structural shift that's happened if this is the best the AMLA 100 can do. Now, this is not to say that this is necessarily the best. Maybe next year we'll be talking about how it's a great year and how it looks a lot like 2005 or 2006. But conversely, we could have a downturn next year, which most economists uh, agree that it is possible. And if that happens, then yeah, we are at the market peak, and, and this doesn't look quite so good. And my fear there would be that firms get complacent in looking at at this year's results and think, wow, things are great. And I, I think that leadership of firms are a lot smarter than that, and they won't. But you know, we, we can't kind of put a, a halt to innovation efforts because the numbers look good too, all of, because of all of the points that Nick just mentioned. To Gina's point on maybe giving a little, you see growth, uh, cost growth went up hugely this year, right? The cost per lawyer grew by 2.8% last year. It grew by 4.3% this year. That's not quite doubling, but, but it's a significant increase in costs. And firms have been so diligent on the cost side over the last decade. And to see that number jump up this year, I think was surprising to me. I knew it was going to go up, but I didn't quite think it was going to go so quickly up. I think the associate salary increases are part of the story, but I think there are also a lot of other costs. Some of them are legitimate investments in the business on the innovation side. Some of them are technology investments that most law firms have frankly been putting off for a couple years. Some of this is Due to cyber risks, I know a ton of firms who tell me they're spending a ton of money on upgrading their systems, on consulting around cyber. So I think there's a lot in those cost figures, but that tells me that firms are starting to loosen the purse strings a little. They're starting to say, okay, you know, if we need to invest in these things, go ahead. It was a good year. Again, if this is the peak of the market, that should be somewhat concerning. Yeah, is this as good as it gets? That sounds like it's a good question for our listeners before we take a break. And in the second part of this, we're going to talk a little bit about the AMLA 200 and dive a little bit deeper into a couple of questions we've already raised. So before we continue our interview with Gina Passarella and Nick Brew, we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. Thomson Reuters Westlaw Edge is the most intelligent legal research platform ever. Powered by state-of-the-art artificial intelligence, Westlaw Edge delivers the fastest answers and the most valuable insights, providing you with a clear strategic advantage. The advanced features on Westlaw Edge allow legal professionals to practice with a greater degree of certainty and confidence never before available. Visit westlawedge.com to learn more. And we're back. Thank you for joining us. We're with Gina Passarella and Nick Brew talking about the AMLA 100 data. And right before the break, we were talking a little bit about the numbers pre-recession. Nick, I just wanted to ask just to level set all of us and our listeners, to what extent are these numbers inflation adjusted when you're talking about revenue growth over the last decade plus? Yeah, so they're not inflation adjusted in the way we've been talking about them. I do, when I do this data for myself to try to understand the moving pieces, sometimes when I do it for specific law firms, we do inflation adjust it. I think there are some interesting findings when you start to do that. That said, I find for the general conversation, inflation adjusting sometimes 
it creates more complexity than than perhaps it adds. I think a lot of people think inflation adjusting sort of is kind of a, a wizardry that kind of can sometimes hide some of the trends. I tend to think it's the opposite, but but for that reason, I tend to keep it out of these kinds of conversations. What I'll say is inflation has been ticking up both in the United States and globally. We saw inflation about a half a point faster this year than last. So when we think about revenue growing at 8% rather than 6%, we have to remember that part of those you know, that 2% is inflation. About a half a point is probably inflation. And so maybe the market grew by only, you know, a point and a half faster. That's that's relevant. I think it becomes more relevant when you start to think about the revenue per lawyer figures, right? Revenue per lawyer grew at 4.1% instead of 3.2%. Well, again, half a point of that is inflation. Uh, and that starts to wipe away a lot of the benefits Uh, from this year to last year. And so the inflation adjusting figures do impact how you look at this. And I think it's important to know that. And I would certainly recommend to law firms, to any market participant, if they're going to look at this data, to do that kind of analysis on it, because I think it will reveal some some interesting findings, particularly on the profit per equity partner side. I think it's, it's a particularly interesting thing. So... What kind of membership change did you see in the AMLO 100, like firms dropping out or, or coming in? And of course, at the margin, maybe that's not interesting, but were there any big kind of big changes? Who are the big movers? Sure. So I can I can take that. We didn't see a ton of change. Frankly, you know, with everybody doing so well, it was actually a bit difficult to change your position in the ranking in the list this year, though certainly mergers helped. We saw two firms drop off and therefore two firms join. So Wombleban Dickinson came onto the list. They were 111th last year, and then they joined the 100 this year. That was thanks to their transatlantic merger with UK's Bond Dickinson. So again, a merger helping buoy that firm. And then Dorsey and Whitney came back to the list um, after just a year hiatus, uh, fueled by a decent revenue growth of 9.2%. So it, you'd have to really see some some hefty revenue growth to come onto the list or to substantially change your your ranking this year. And so last year, we, we saw that the AMLA 100 did well, but then when the AMLA 200 came out, it seemed to be that some of the, the benefits we saw in the AMLA 100 were at the expense of the AMLA 200. Do you have enough data about the AMLA 200 yet that you can say whether, I mean, will that be the case this year? So we're still finalizing the second hundred data. Um, I don't want to give too much away, but we've we've reported individually on a lot of the firms that typically make up that group. And in looking at some of the preliminary data, I can say that I don't think the second hundred numbers are going to come in nearly as strong as the first hundred. I'll, I'll give you that kind of uh, preview into the data without saying too much, but I think there may be some truth to what you're saying. I would say even within the AMLA 100, there is some foreshadowing on what you might expect in the second hundred. I mentioned this earlier, but on the revenue side, that the largest 25 firms grew by 8.2%. Uh, the smallest 25, the 75 to 100, grew by 3.6% after you adjust for some of those mergers that happened in there. Womble is one firm that sort of did a merger. Brian Cave is another. Foley and Lardner did. Hunt and Andrews Kurth did a merger. So th- those are all sort of in that 75 to 100 group. Um, so, you know, that big drop-off starts to tell you what might be happening in that next 100. 
Uh, when you start to look at some of the other metrics, I think you start to see even bigger concerns. Revenue per lawyer among the top 25 firms grew by 5.7%, so pretty pretty steady growth. Among the bottom 25, that 75 to 100 group, you're seeing 0.4%, right? Which again, if you were to inflation adjust that, that's actually, they shrank in terms of revenue per lawyer. Profit per lawyer, the bottom group, the 75 to 100, actually shrank by 0.1% without inflation adjusting. Um, that, I think, starts to tell you what you might expect to find. Now, again, it's important to note the second 100 group, is it's a diverse group of firms, and there are some extremely profitable, high-achieving firms within that group. There are also some regional single-state firms who will be often, their performance will be almost entirely due to the regional economic performance of that region. Then there are some national firms whose performance looks not so dissimilar to some of the, the national firms in that 75 to 100 group. So the second hundred is often a mixed bag, but what I like about the second hundred particularly and why I look forward to that data is it really gives us a sense of what's happening at the regional level. We see a lot more regional firms. We see a lot more local firms in that data, and it helps me understand where the hot spots are, where the slow spots are, um, where the competition is coming to bear, all that stuff we see in the second hundred that we see in the 100, but with that additional hundred firms, we really get a great picture of it. Okay. You both have mentioned, uh, alluded to kind of like what's going to happen the next downturn. I guess I'd like to just ask directly, and I'll start with you, Gina, what do you think would happen during a downturn? Sure. So I don't think that anybody is expecting the next downturn to be quite like the previous one. I don't think firm leaders are anticipating that. Um, I think that they're really trying hard to make good use of the last few good years that they've had. But what I see happening is, you know, a, a kind of a, this is going to be the time for the alternative legal services providers to shine. Um, I think that clients are going to look around much more closely at what their options are in the market and law firms may not be the go-to. So that again, leaves for law firms kind of that highest end, most sophisticated legal work to do. Every single law firm tells me that's what they want to be doing. There's clearly not enough work to go around for even all 200 firms to keep them busy at that level to just do the high-end work. So it's going to have implications more so for some firms than others. I think your elite firms are going to be in great demand for the work that they do. Um, you know, you're not going to see a lot of firms doing what Kirkland did this year or last year, which was, you know, in 2018, they added $600 million in revenue. That wasn't on the back of a big merger. It was just pure demand-driven. And so firms like that may still be able to to kind of have that differentiated offering that keeps clients coming to them at maybe close to that rate, if not quite that rate. But other firms, I, I think, are going to have to suffer through kind of figuring out how to differentiate themselves and, frankly, figure out how their offering is better than an ASP. Yeah, I tend to agree with Gina on a lot of what she just said. Um, I think... One thing that looms in the back of my mind is over the last decade or so, we have seen the partnership model at most law firms change dramatically. Um, if we go back 15 years to 2004, we were at 71% equity partnership in the partnership model. Today, we're at 56%. 
Almost certainly in the next downturn, I think we will finally see that tipping point. We will see a majority of the partnership will be non-equity. I think one question to ask is the people who have shifted from the equity partnership to the non-equity, how many of those people will stick around through the downturn? Will firms, instead of just shifting them down to a lower comp, will some firms choose to lay off those people because they're, they're less profitable, perhaps? And that's a big question. Uh, one question that Hugh Simons and I asked in the AMLA package this year was what happens to a lot of the international offices? And I think that's a really relevant question. There are a lot of very small international offices that law firms have built over the last decade, offices that are 10 lawyers, 5 lawyers, 20 lawyers. Some of those offices are profitable. Some of those offices that are are profitable are still not as profitable as the U.S. offices, which means there's a subsidy, right? The U.S. partners are essentially subsidizing the compensation of the international partners. That will come under intense pressure, and I think a lot of firms will pull back from their international offering, and they'll say, you know what? We don't need an office in London or Hong Kong or Brussels. We can form partnerships and find local counsel to work with. The other thing I'll say, and Gina obviously touched on this, is the ASPs. I think in the last downturn, there were a few ASPs that had robust offerings. Axiom obviously was around in the last downturn. Uh, so was Integrion. The offering is much more robust now than it was. I think many of the ASPs are in many ways preparing themselves for the next downturn. I think they're growing, they're developing their offering, they're investing in the business. Uh, I think that when the next downturn comes, the GCs will be approached by their CFOs and say, we need help, we need you to cut costs. The GCs will look around and they will find a vendor that is the alternative service providers, which frankly, they didn't see last time around. And they'll go to them and they say, what can you do for us? And they will be able to do a lot more for them than they did before. And that I mentioned before was a managed services model. That managed services model, I think, is going to take off in the next downturn. The question, obviously, is when is the next downturn? And the simple answer is no one knows. There's even quite a bit of disagreement among economists on that. There is more disagreement today than there was even four months ago. You've seen a lot of economists who were predicting a downturn pull back and say, eh, maybe we're just going to see a softening. That's a real possibility. But also, there's still a lot of very smart economists who are saying that there is a massive downturn coming, that there's a lot of debt out there, and there's a bubble, and it's going to hit eventually. The truth is, nobody knows. Yeah. Well, one's going to come, right? I mean, everyone will tell you one is coming. Um, it's just the timing. And you mentioned, you know, having gone through, been in a firm through the last downturn, definitely saw the effects of that. And, and, and we saw partners de-equitize, some move to non-equity status, some let go. We also saw associates let go. We saw law student graduates who weren't hired and then had a hard time kind of getting into the marketplace once hiring picked up again. What do you think would be the impact on senior associates, junior associates, and law school graduates in a downturn? So in some respects, it can be an opportunity, right? If firms are looking to kind of push down work to an appropriately charged out attorney, they, they might have, and, and non-equity partners are being moved out of the way because firms are realizing that they probably have just frankly too many of them. It's, it's a group that's been growing and, and hasn't been proven to be 
super profitable. So it, it could be a, an opportunity for associates. Yes, there's there's a risk of cuts. I mean, I frankly have been arguing for, for some time that I think firms are probably overstaffed um, with attorneys at a number of different levels. If it's, they really look at what the clients are demanding and you know how they need to provide those services in a more efficient way, I think that there's probably room in all of the ranks for firms to do some cutting. But it, it really depends on, on the practice area. I think that's why you know having a niche and, and being able to really market yourself as an expert in a certain area, as long as that area isn't one that's about to crash, um, I, I think that that can be a really compelling offering. I mean, I think you know if, if we look at particularly what law students can take away from all of this data, you know, you can never look at the financial information in a vacuum. Certainly, it's helpful to look at year-over-year trajectory. You want the employer that you're looking to hire or that you're looking to join be financially viable, and, and it looks to be a going concern years down the line. But you also have to look at interviews with firm leadership and what went into those numbers. What is the culture like at that firm? Um, what are the hiring levels? We do a lot of surveys on associate satisfaction and from both summer associates and mid-level associates. What are what's being said about the firm and what environment that's like to to be in? So there's so much information that you kind of have to look at um, in tandem and not look at anything isolated and and really make you know a, a complete decision about where you want to take your career trajectory. And now, frankly, for associates, one of the benefits may be that there are so many other uses of a law degree that are are actual uses of a law degree. Alternative legal services providers may be a really interesting place to work. In-house is more of an interesting place to work than it's ever been. They're doing more sophisticated work. So there's more opportunities um, in many ways. But it's it's figuring out the best path for you in this market. I'm not going to say that it's an easy easy thing to be able to do. Yeah, I'd agree with Gina. I, I think um, there's a lot of moving pieces here. I think I don't worry too much about the senior associates. The senior associates are some of the most profitable in the law firm. Firms are not going to fire there. Where they're going to fire is is probably the non-equity ranks and the more junior associates who they have to invest a lot in the training side and they can't bill out as much. So that's that's a place to worry a bit. Um, people who are exiting law school as the economy is tanking obviously will face incredibly difficult times. In 2009, the AMLA 100 shed 1,500 associates. Uh, they did not do a lot of hiring, as you might imagine, when they're firing that many. The good news is in 2010, they hired a lot of people back, right? They they hired 2,000 associates during that period. And so I think it's important to remember that it tends to go up and down. There was a long period of time after that where there was very little associate net ads. Um, so so it does, a downturn typically does have a hangover effect, which which obviously impacts people who are maybe not entering law school today, but might be considering it in two or three or four years down the road, that would be a concerning place to be. But but to Gina's point, there's a lot of moving pieces here. Many firms did well during the downturn. Uh, you have to take all these data points in, in concert together and, and understand sort of how they're moving together. 
And just as a preview for our July edition, I'll note that we actually are looking at kind of the lost classes of 2009-10, if you will. So what happened to the associates who were graduating, deferred, had offers rescinded? How did their career trajectories change? Where are they now? And, and what lessons we can learn for the coming recession? So I think that'll answer a lot of the questions that we've been talking about here. Well, that sounds really interesting. I mean, I, I do have this anecdotal sense about this kind of donut hole like where people, if you didn't get an, uh, a job through on-campus interviewing after the downturn, and then you tried to get back in the marketplace, uh, I know a lot of lawyers who feel like they just their career just, uh, it's been hard to get their career back on track. Uh, now, maybe one of the things that is changing is I think firms are getting savvier about talent management and thinking about how you know, how they're hiring. So it'll be interesting to see what impact that has. Nick, I did want to ask you, I think Gina mentioned a couple of ways in which, uh, you know, I'm constantly encouraging my law students and associates and people are going to lateral to use the data that's available to not just get, uh, you know, there's a lot of fancy firms out there and not just kind of fall in love with a particular fancy firm, but to kind of ask, you know, gather some of the data that can help them. Uh, Gina mentioned the associate satisfaction surveys. Is there other data, including your data? I mean, how should a law student, a young associate who's uh, looking at a lateral opportunity, use the data that ALM provides to figure out if you know a firm is a, a good fit for them? Well, you know, first of all, I think there's lots of different kinds of data. I think the associate satisfaction data that Gina mentioned, as well as the data that sort of fits into the broader A-list category, so things that relate to diversity, things that relate to either gender or minority diversity, as well as pro bono stuff. I think that's really useful to look at that because in many ways you're looking at the firm's values. And and if you're someone who who has strong values, then that's going to be important to you. And so I do think you should be researching that side of things. The next question is, is, is this law firm going to face some headwind, uh, either because of the part of the market it's in or because of something specific that's inherent to that firm? I think there's two pieces there. I do think law schools should be teaching their students what parts of the market are, are perhaps going to face the most difficulty in the coming decade or the coming two decades? I'll tell you, when I look at the data, I think there are some pretty clear answers to that. Um, now, sometimes analysts like me are wrong. Sometimes we're right. But I think they should be forcing their students to think critically about different parts of the market. And then I think there's, there's sort of the individual firm to, to actually dive in and to say, you know, what's going on with this firm? Do they, if they're predominantly in a certain market, uh, let me go look at if 60 or 70 or 80 percent of their lawyers are in Houston or Minneapolis or wherever it is. What happens if that market suddenly faces a lot of competition? We've seen what happens in, in Houston, for example. Some of the leading firms in that market who looked like great firms in 2001, 2002, 2003 are facing a ton of new competition today. And some of that you probably could have seen coming if you looked critically at the data. I think then there's obviously the financial data. I think you should be looking at how a firm's revenue streams are. How stable are they? How volatile are those revenue streams? Are they going up and down? Why are they going up and down? Are they going up and down because of contingencies? Well, that's not so bad. Are they going up and down because they're losing lawyers through lateral markets? That, to me, is, is a little more concerning. And then there's the profitability side. Has the firm been growing its profit per lawyer? Has it been growing its profit per equity partner? If it hasn't 
been, well, that starts to grow, create some concerns on its ability to invest in innovation, its ability to attract and retain partners on the profit per equity partner side. All of those data points are really important. And I certainly, whenever I talk to law schools, encourage them to be teaching their students who will ultimately, in some cases, become you know, associates and senior associates and perhaps one day partners or even managing partners, how to look at that data and see uh, the trends, see the forest for the trees, understand what they're looking at. Well, I want to hear what Gina thinks about this, but I can't help but to follow up, Nick, on what you said about, and I, and I realize we're, we're predicting the future a little bit here. On the other hand, there's no shortage of folks in our space who are more than happy to predict the future, and they have nowhere near the kind of data resources you have. So I think we'd all be really interested in hearing where you say you see clear trends where, are you talking about in practice groups? Maybe certain practice groups are going to be radically different. What sort of way would you couch that? But I'd love to hear more about it. Yeah, so my part of my job is is to look in the crystal ball, and I can look in the crystal ball and come up with lots of different theories about where the market's going. I think some of those theories seem like they're already kind of playing out. You know, I think we've seen over the last couple of years a group of firms who focused, for example, on private equity, on high-end services, on sort of elite services, if you will, those firms have separated themselves from the pack. Uh, you see that most clearly in the profit per equity partner figures and the profit per lawyer figures. Um, but you see it in other ways too. Their revenue growth has been faster. I think those firms are going to continue to separate themselves. They're going to continue to separate themselves in their ability to attract and retain the best talent. Ultimately, those firms are going to move away from the rest of the firms, in my opinion. And I think as they do that, I think you'll see sort of the elite top end of the market really become its own segment that is very focused on how they attract, retain, compensate, and enable really the, the best thinkers in the legal industry who are constantly innovating in the practice of law, right? And coming up with new ways to service clients' complex legal needs. I think that's going to become a very different part of the market than it is today. And that what the question is, is how many firms exist in that world? Is it 25? Is it 10? The God honest answer is, I don't think anyone knows. I think right now, you could probably argue there's somewhere around 25 to 50 firms within that area. I don't think there's going to be 50 firms going forward in that area. I think we're going to see some firms fall out. I think we're going to see some firms, perhaps, which are not already in that group enter. I think we're going to see that portion of the market shake out, and it will shake out on exactly what I said, the ability to attract and retain the best talent. I think the next question is, what happens to the run the company segment of the market? That market, I think, is, is talent is still going to be important, right? The people who are exiting law schools who are going to go into those firms are still going to be an integral part of that offering. But so is technology and so is process. So is infrastructure and the ability to, you know, uh, deliver knowledge to individuals, uh, the ability to uh, have infrastructure on, around technology to make things work faster and more consistent and cheaper for clients. Again, I think some of those firms that I, when I look at that part of the market, I think some of the bigger global firms seem to be doing the right things to invest. The firms that I worry about are some of the regional firms or even some of the national firms who either are not investing in the necessary infrastructure to 
bind all the firm's offices into a single cohesive offering or are not doing what's necessary on the process side to begin to try to lower the cost for clients. And I think that's going to be a really important part of that part of the market going forward. So that's what I worry about. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, yeah, that is very helpful. And uh, thinking about processes, people, process, data, technology, all that stuff is music to my ears. And uh, so, Gina, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to, to to add to that as far as kind of looking out into the future, kind of what trends you're seeing and, and what you think we ought to be aware of. Sure. Well, you know, I, I'm I'm always a little hesitant to to predict too much, but. I would say that, I mean, firms really need to, whether it's looking at the data that's in Legal Compass that, that Nick is involved with or or looking, frankly, at their own data. I mean, I think there could be a lot to be done right now. Take a look back, see what trend lines were happening before the last recession. Really analyze where your firm was, what you saw coming. Look at what what's happening now and, and try to do a little predicting. I mean, we definitely saw a group of firms really frankly, capitalize on the last recession. Um, and, and perhaps some of it was luck. They were in the right practice mix at the right time, had the right client group. But I think above all, I mean, data is wonderful. But if you're not listening to your clients and really listening to what their problems are, where their industries are headed, and kind of tailoring your approach to that, I mean, I think that's where your biggest opportunities come from, is, is really just listening to what they want and what they need, both from the legal and business advice that they require, as well as the way that it's provided. Um, and, and don't wait until the downturn happens to make those changes. Start implementing now. If the years are so good, take that money and invest and, and make some changes to better position yourself for when the recession does hit. I could not agree more with Gina on the don't wait piece. The don't wait piece is so important. Firms need to be investing today. I think if for no other reason... Firms should be very aware that the big four are out there. They are expanding into the legal market. There is open talk about the U.S. regulatory environment changing, which would benefit the big four. Right now, U.S. law firms are protected from a lot of competition. If things change, as they've already changed in the U.K., as they've already changed in Europe, as they've already changed in Australia – That will create a whole new competitive environment for U.S. law firms. U.S. law firms should be getting ahead of that, and they should be preparing for open competition with the big four, with alternative service providers, uh, with law firms, frankly, who are adjusting their models to look slightly more similar to alternative service providers. Investing today is the best thing that they can possibly do. One of the interesting things there is this idea that regulations could change. And then the related question is, it almost doesn't matter if the regulations change because we're seeing things evolve where, I mean, you look at Ernst & Young recently just purchasing Pangea 3, Thomson Reuters Managed Legal Services. I mean, the big four is heavily involved around the globe and they're getting more and more involved here in the U.S. So even if regulation doesn't change, the marketplace is changing tremendously with all these new competitors you mentioned before, the alternative legal services providers, legal tech companies. So it's going to be it's going to be an interesting next uh, decade and, and probably many more years after that. Well, so we're getting close to the end here. I just wanted to ask a question as well about, you know, Jim Sandman has been someone, for example, who's, who's talked a lot about trying to not just measure revenue and profits in the marketplace, try to measure 
innovation and technology. And, and I agree with him that not only does that have a great impact for AMLA 200 firms and big corporate legal departments, but it helps improve legal service delivery across the marketplace and can really help us improve access to law and legal services. And, uh, you know, so to that extent, you talked about costs going up and, and certainly some of that investment we can see from anecdotes in the marketplace is investing in innovation and technology. We're seeing tons of firms hire chief innovation officers, hiring more project managers, things like that. I mean, what kind of concrete numbers can you point to in this AMLA 100 data to maybe suggest that we're seeing more investment in innovation and technology specifically? We do have some data on um, that I don't think will be released in the AMLA 100 package that talks about where law firms are investing their dollars. This is a question we ask them. We particularly ask them uh, if they're taking out debt, how they're using that debt. I'll tell you that of the firms who answered that question, technology was the number one reason for taking out debt was to invest in technology. And so we do have some hard data there. But yes, a lot of this is antidotal. And that's because a lot of firms are doing very different things in the technology space. And it is somewhat difficult to track where all these dollars are going. I'll tell you, I hear the dollars largely sort of falling into three areas. One, I mentioned this before, is connected to the cyber piece. I think a lot of law firms are trying to get certified as there's a few different certifications, but they're trying to get sort of certified as, you know, we're, we're sort of safe pair of hands sort of thing. That costs a lot of money, as you might imagine, to get certified. It also takes a lot of time. And so law firms have been spending a lot of dollars there. I think law firms are also upgrading some of their uh, systems. You've seen quite a few law firms changing their uh, matter management systems, the systems in which they use to manage the business. Last is on the on the actual delivery side, there is obviously a whole host of new tools that are connected to AI, that are connected to contract management. Obviously, the e-discovery stuff is is old now, but but it is still evolving rapidly. And as it's evolving, it's adding more cost. Those are the three areas I see firms investing dollars. The last piece I'll say is that isn't necessarily a technology piece, but it's obviously related, which is on the process side. There are some firms who are trying to invest in process improvement. I think less firms are investing in this than should be. This is an area I hear a lot of firms talking about, but then when I drill into it, I don't see as many dollars as I think should be spent on this. Some firms have been very aggressive. Uh, Baker and McKenzie is not a bad example of a firm which has been very aggressive on this side, and I think you know, in this last year's AMLA data, they did quite well. I think over the last couple of years, they've done quite well. So perhaps you see some of the the returns from those kinds of investments coming home. But I think part of the cost increase you saw this year, and as I mentioned, costs are up significantly. It is a technology story. There are other factors at play, but I think what I hear from firm leaders is technology played a pretty big role this year. Yeah, that's the talk about process improvement really resonates with me. My prior practice experience and the work I'm doing now and many of these 
what are labeled as technology projects, what you find out is there's a lot of work to be done just in the process, figure out like, how do we really do this? What problem are we trying to solve? What value do we produce? So I couldn't agree more about the huge gains to be made around process improvement. I have to say it drives me a little bit crazy sometimes too, when people just talk about lack of resources for doing work in this space, because I think so much of the work is, is changing culture, getting people to change mindsets. Uh, when you talk about doing process improvement and project management, of course you need to get some people have some expertise to try to lead this, but most of it is getting people engaged and uh, a pack of sticky notes and people in a conference room can make a lot of progress on this versus thinking about the millions that maybe need to be invested in technology. Sure. So I think somebody said this at our Business of Law Forum that we hosted in January at Legal Week, and it, and it couldn't be more true, that innovation can be boring. And a lot of times, you know, process, it, it's process, right? It, it's much more than just technology. And it's so much that you can do today. It's not what we have to invest in or what dramatic changes do we need to make. There are little tweaks to your model or to, frankly, the, the way that your employees operate that can be done today that can have a big impact. And I would just add that I think the the more that firms hire business professionals to come in and help r- them run like a business and give them an actual seat at the table, I think those are the firms that we're seeing really stand out. Um, so I, I think that that's going to be a big differentiator in the next decade, whether it be the chief pricing officer, the chief innovation officer, um, and just business professionals in general, really looking at these issues and being held responsible for them and given the ability to drive that change. I think that's where we're going to see a big difference. How, how, what tools they use, whether it's technology or something else to, to make that change happen. I think that's, that's where we're going to see the difference. Well, thank you, Gina and Nick, for joining us to talk about the American Lawyer 2019 AMLA 100 data. I'd like for our listeners to know how they can reach you. Gina, do you want to go first and, and let us know how to contact you? Sure thing. Feel free to call or email, Twitter, LinkedIn, wherever is easiest for you. I'm, I'm happy to, to continue these discussions. My email address, so you have it, is gpasarella at alm.com. My Twitter handle is gpasarella, T-A-L, for the American lawyer. So reach out anytime. would love to talk more about this. Nick? Yeah, um, likewise, uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, you can also reach me by email at nbruch at alm.com. Feel free to email me on any question. I get a lot out of talking with people about what they're facing, and it helps drive our research. So please uh, reach out. Well, thank you, Gina and Nick, for joining us. And this has been another edition of Law Technology Now on the Legal Talk Network. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. Join us next time for another edition of Law Technology Now. I'm Dan Linna, signing off. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.